0: Hey folks, welcome back to Excuse Me History. It is your host Joe, and this is episode 7 of the Gettysburg series. And in this one, we are finally going to get to the Battle of Gettysburg and talk about the first day's fight on July 1st. <gasps> yes! Yes! F- yes! Fight's happening! It's f***ing happening! Sorry for the delay in this episode coming out. I meant for it to come out last week, but had a lot of recording issues. Uh, basically, all summer and fall, I've had to deal with a ton of construction that's been going on right outside my apartment, and basically, uh, most of the day, all you can hear is beeping and uh, construction equipment outside, and it just makes the, uh, the recording process kind of difficult. So I'm trying to figure out a better way to record just so I can get these episodes out a little uh, more timely and regularly. Maybe I'll change the day that I release them on. We'll see how it goes. But uh, again, thank you for listening to the show. And this is the part of the introduction where I say things like, hey, if you haven't already subscribed to the show, go ahead and do that on whatever podcast app it is that you listen to the show. Also, if you have not liked or uh, rated the show on whatever app you use, if that is available, please do so. It affects the algorithm and it'll end up getting recommended to more people and showing up more in search results, so that is appreciated. Also, if you have not liked the Facebook page, go ahead and do that. I did see a, a bunch of people have liked it recently, so... Appreciate you if you have done so, uh, but I try to post some updates every once in a while on the Facebook page and just post some supplemental information that helps uh, follow along in the action. And I will be sure to do that for this episode as well, since a lot of action is going on with the first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, and I'm not going to talk anymore about liking and subscribing and rating the show. Let's just start the episode. (laughs) June 28, 1863 turned out to be a rather eventful day for the leaders of the Army of the Potomac and Northern Virginia. General Joseph Hooker's half-hearted bluff of a request to be relieved of command was accepted by President Lincoln, and his replacement, General George Meade, took charge of the Army. Just days after the Federals had crossed the Potomac in pursuit of the Rebel Army, Meade now had to take control of the situation and find them before they could find him. General Robert E. Lee had been blind to the movements of Hooker's forces for most of the past week. His main source of intelligence, Cavalry Leader General Jeb Stuart, had been out of touch with Lee for several days. Unbeknownst to Lee, Stuart had twice tried to contact him to report the position of the Army of the Potomac, but twice his couriers failed to find the Army commander. Then late in the evening, a spy working for General James Longstreet was forwarded to Lee's headquarters. Henry Harrison informed the General that Federal Infantry was about 50 miles away in the vicinity of Frederick, Maryland. Some of the cavalry was even closer. Lee believed that the Army should move east of South Mountain to prevent the Federals from getting behind them in Virginia. He chose the area around Cashtown in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, for the Army to concentrate. On June 29th, Lee sent out orders to his Corps commanders. General A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps was at Fayetteville, about 10 miles west of Cashtown, which made them the closest. Longstreet's 1st Corps was at Chambersburg and would follow behind the 3rd Corps, though Pickett's division was to be left at Chambersburg to protect the army's supply wagon train until General John M. Bowden's Cavalry Brigade arrived to relieve them. General Richard Ewell's 2nd Corps was much further away and sparse. His infantry was mostly in the vicinity of Carlisle, but Early's division was to the southwest at Wrightsville. The cavalry brigade of General Albert Jenkins was ahead of Ewell's main body at Mechanicsburg, and on the 29th, Jenkins led his brigade in the direction of Harrisburg to reconnoiter the Union militia force gathered at the state capital. Rhodes's and Johnson's divisions were on the move, with the intention of driving off General Couch's militia and capturing the city, but before they'd made significant progress, Ewell received orders from Lee that directed him to turn his corps around and head for Cashtown. Jedediah Hotchkiss, a civilian cartographer who served on Yule's staff, wrote that the general was disappointed by this news as he was supremely confident in his Corps' ability to take Harrisburg. The soldiers were also disheartened by the news because they were mostly left in the dark about the reason for their withdrawal. Many interpreted it as some kind of retreat, just as they were about to meet the enemy. It was late in the day on the 29th, and Lee's orders conveyed no sense of urgency, so it was not until the 30th that the 2nd Corps would start moving toward Cashtown. They got off to an early start on the 30th, with Johnson's division moving out first by countermarching the same way they'd come. Lee sent further orders to Ewell that instructed him to move directly toward Cashtown and not move west of South Mountain in the direction of Chambersburg, but Johnson's division was already on the march that way. Rhodes, however, did move almost directly south from Carlisle to Petersburg, modern-day York Springs, and Heidlersburg. Yule also forwarded Lee's orders to Jubal Early in Wrightsville, who began his own countermarch on the 30th as well. They moved due east back through York and reached Heidlersburg shortly after Rhodes's division passed through. While Johnson's division was marching toward Chambersburg, they ran into a group of Union militiamen that had surrendered to Early's division a few days before and had been paroled, meaning that they were free to return home, but could not rejoin the war until there had been an official prisoner exchange. Johnson ordered the militiamen to remove their shoes and hand them over to his own troops, which they begrudgingly agreed to do. His troops continued their march southwest until they turned southeast at Scotland, Pennsylvania, in the direction of the small village of Greenwood. When they reached the Chambersburg Pike, they caused a huge traffic jam. The 3rd Corps had already moved through South Mountain and reached Cashtown, but Longstreet's column, which was next in line, was forced to wait to allow Johnson's 14-mile-long column to march ahead of them. What seemed like a minor delay at the time would have profound consequences in the next couple of days. General Jenkins' cavalry brigade, most of which had occupied Mechanicsburg, was also to continue acting as an escort for Ewell's main column. Jenkins' troopers began to withdraw on the 30th, which the militia commander at Harrisburg, General Darius Couch, recognized. The 22nd and 37th New York Militia Regiments advanced from Camp Hill to Sporting Hill and attacked the 16th Virginia Cavalry, which was serving as the rear guard for the 2nd Corps. This was one of the few shiny moments for the militia during the Gettysburg Campaign. The two New York Militia Regiments, aided by artillery, managed to wound or kill around 35 to 45 Virginia Cavalrymen and lost only 11 men wounded themselves. Further to the south, General Henry Heath's division reached Cashtown on the evening of the 29th. On the morning of the 30th, Heath ordered Brigadier General J. Johnson Pettigrew to take his Lord's Brigade to Gettysburg to reconnoiter and gather supplies. J. Johnson Pettigrew had no military experience prior to the Civil War. He was born into a wealthy, slaveholding family in eastern North Carolina in 1828. One of his cousins was John Gibbon, who on June 30th was a Brigadier General and commander of the 2nd Division of the 2nd Corps in the Army of the Potomac. I'm always struck by how much smaller the world was in 1863. It really feels like everybody was cousins back then. Pettigrew was something of a wunderkind. He entered the University of North Carolina at age 15 and before he turned 20 was appointed by President James K. Polk to be an assistant professor at the Naval Observatory in Washington. Eventually he studied law and entered the legal profession. He traveled through Europe in the 1850s and wrote a book about his observations called Notes on Spain and the Spaniards in the Summer of 1859, with a glance at Sardinia. Pettigrew eventually settled in Charleston, South Carolina, where he opened a law practice and was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1856. He was swept up in the secessionist atmosphere of Charleston in 1860. He served as an aide to the governor during the negotiations for the surrender of Fort Sumter during the spring of 1861. Afterward, he accepted a commission as Colonel in Hampton's Legion, and by the spring of 1862, was promoted to Brigadier General and given command of an infantry brigade. That didn't last long, as he was wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines during the Peninsula Campaign. His wounds were so severe that it was assumed that he died on the battlefield, but he was captured by Federal troops and miraculously survived. Pettigrew recovered and made his way back to Richmond after a prisoner exchange. He assumed command of a brigade in D.H. Hill's division, which he led in the winter and early spring of 1863. Pettigrew's North Carolina Brigade was assigned to the Army of Northern Virginia specifically for Lee's planned operation. His troops were relatively inexperienced since they'd spent most of the time since the Peninsula Campaign in Southern Virginia and North Carolina out of the action, but because they'd seen little combat, their total number of 2,500 soldiers made them the largest brigade in Lee's army. The 26th North Carolina Infantry was also the largest regiment. On the morning of the 30th, General Pettigrew led his brigade eight miles from Cashtown to the outskirts of Gettysburg, but instead of finding the town unoccupied, they spotted Federal cavalry as they approached the western side of town. The Yankee troopers probed the skirmish line that was out in front of the main body of the brigade. Pettigrew, who was under orders not to initiate a battle, ordered his brigade to turn around and march back toward Cashtown before anything major could develop. Pettigrew himself wrote to report the encounter to General Heath. Though he was emphatic that it was cavalry from the Army of the Potomac that occupied Gettysburg, Pettigrew's scouts also believed that Federal infantry was nearby. While they were in the middle of the meeting, General Hill arrived. The following conversation was recounted by Heath after the war. Allegedly, Hill said to Pettigrew, "...the only force at Gettysburg is cavalry, probably a detachment of observation. I am just from General Lee, and the information he has from his scouts corroborates what I have received from mine. That is, the enemy is still at Middleburg and have not yet struck their tents." Heath then said to Hill, "...if there is no objection, I will take my division tomorrow and go to Gettysburg and get those shoes." Let's get some shoes." Hill replied, quote, "...none in the world." Unquote. Heat's account of the June 30th conference with Hill and Pettigrew was widely accepted as fact and became part of the romantic story of Gettysburg. In fact, of all the myths associated with the battle, the shoe myth is probably the most well-known story and has persisted for well over a century. To this day, you'll hear people claim that the Battle of Gettysburg was started because barefoot rebels marched into town to find shoes. Shiz. In some versions of the story, it's alleged that there was even a shoe factory in Gettysburg. The myth began in late 1863, when Henry Heath wrote his report on the Gettysburg Campaign. Quote, on the morning of June 30th, I ordered Brigadier General Pettigrew to take his brigade to Gettysburg, search the town for army supplies, shoes especially, Shows. and return the same day. On reaching the suburbs of Gettysburg, General Pettigrew found a large force of cavalry near the town, supported by an infantry force. Under these circumstances, he did not deem it advisable to enter the town and returned as directed to Cashtown. The result of General Pettigrew's observations was reported to Lieutenant General Hill, who reached Cashtown on the evening of the 30th, Heath did not go into detail about the meeting with Hill and Pettigrew in his report. It wasn't until more than a decade after the war that Heath wrote an article for the Philadelphia Weekly Times' Annals of War series, in which he gave a much more in-depth account of what happened on June 30th. He expanded on the shoe story, and also made it seem like Hill was of the opinion that no major force of cavalry or infantry occupied Gettysburg. It was probably just a Pennsylvania home guard unit that Pettigrew encountered. Heath would go on to repeat the story again when he wrote his memoirs in the late 1890s, though this account went unpublished until well into the 20th century. Many historians took Heath's post-war accounts pretty much at face value. But over time, the level of skepticism over Heath's memoirs, and Civil War memoirs in general, has increased. How did a brief post-battle mention of shoes turn into the catalyst for the Battle of Gettysburg? The biggest factor was that the officers of the war wanted to defend their reputations in the years after. Everyone wanted to paint themselves in the best light and pass blame onto others whenever possible. Some of this happened during the war, but the blame game only increased after 1865. My inclination is to believe that Heath didn't want to take credit for starting the battle intentionally. Instead, he acted as if he unknowingly stumbled into a battle that he didn't have the ability to stop once it had begun. One benefit that Heath had in 1877, when his first Gettysburg article was published, was that there was no one with direct knowledge of what happened on the night of June 30th alive to refute his claims. Both Hill and Pettigrew were dead at that point. One man who was still alive that called him out publicly was John Singleton Mosby. The Confederate guerrilla leader picked up on Heath's blame of Jeb Stuart for his lack of knowledge of the Union Army's whereabouts. Without Stuart's cavalry screen, it was his infantry that was the first to come into contact with the Federal forces. If Stuart had been with the Army on June 30th or July 1st, they wouldn't have stumbled into a fight. Mosby sent letters to both the Philadelphia Weekly Times and the Southern Historical Society, but the latter refused to publish Mosby's repudiation of Heath's account. By that time, Mosby had gone against the bulk of the ex-Confederates in the Reconstruction era by joining the Republican Party and was a pariah in much of white Southern society. The Times, however, did publish Mosby's account, which Heath responded to almost immediately. He went into full denial mode about Mosby's claims, but later contradicted himself in his own memoirs when he accidentally confirmed some of what Mosby said. Mosby again wrote about the subject in 1908 when he published a work on Stewart's role in the Gettysburg Campaign. Again, he reiterated much of his claims from 1877 and went on to say that Hill and Heath knew that a significant federal force was in or around Gettysburg. Heath was passing the blame on Stuart's absence for his stumbling into battle. Mosby wrote, If Hill and Heath had stood still, they would not have stumbled. Now, to be fair, Mosby wasn't the most objective observer here. He was a close friend of Stuart during the war and afterward became the staunchest defender of his record. I do think that Stuart deserves some share of the blame for what happened at Gettysburg, but Mosby was right to call out Heath for making him the scapegoat. Heath had his own role to play in the affair that he tried to distance himself from. Mosby's instincts were probably correct. Hill and Heath had grander ambitions on July 1st than either would acknowledge afterward. The shoe myth, if not a total fabrication, was greatly embellished after the battle and the war by Heath to cover up for his blunder. Anyway, it was around this time when Robert E. Lee learned of the change of command in the Army of the Potomac. We're not sure of the exact moment that Lee found out, but it most likely happened on the 30th. British observer Colonel Arthur Fremantle was with Longstreet that day and recorded, quote, In the evening, General Longstreet told me that he had just received intelligence that Hooker had been disrated and that Meade was appointed in his place. Of course, he knew them both in the old army, and he says that Meade is an honorable and respectable man, though not, perhaps, so bold as Hooker, unquote. So, considering that Longstreet learned of Meade's ascendance on the last day of June, it seems highly probable that Lee did as well. Colonel Armistead Long, Lee's military secretary, recalled his reaction after the war. Lee clearly had a higher estimation of Meade than he did of Mr. F.J. Hooker Quote, General Meade will commit no blunder in my front, and if I make one, he will make haste to take advantage of it. Unquote. Nevertheless, he felt that with a battle looming any day now, the change played to his advantage. Even if Lee respected Meade's abilities as a commander, he must have sensed an opportunity to catch the Army of the Potomac in a state of flux. Colonel Long went on to say that, quote, He was therefore rather satisfied than otherwise by the change. Unquote. So, where exactly was the Army of the Potomac in the last days of June? On the 29th, General George Meade set out to relieve Harrisburg from the threat of the Confederate Second Corps, while making sure to keep his army between the Rebels and Washington. At this time, Meade had a great advantage over Lee in terms of intelligence. Whereas Lee was almost completely caught off guard by the close proximity of the Army of the Potomac on the night of the 28th, Meade actually had a pretty good sense of where the Confederate Army was. He knew that the Second Corps was up near Carlisle and that the 1st and 3rd were somewhere between Chambersburg and Gettysburg. BMI scouts, as well as concerned citizens, kept tabs on the position, strength, and movement of the rebels. And with the bulk of Jeb Stuart's cavalry either in the Shenandoah Valley or east of the Federal Army, there was no screen to stop his own cavalry and scouts. Before General Hooker had officially been relieved of command, he directed the 1st Cavalry Division under the command of General John Buford to ride to the area of Gettysburg. On the 29th, Buford detached his reserve brigade, led by the newly promoted General Wesley Merritt, which moved to Mechanicstown. Buford's other two brigades, those led by Colonels William Gamble and Thomas Devon, crossed South Mountain between Middletown and Boonesboro, then turned north toward Monterey Pass. By the night of the 29th, they'd again cross back over to the eastern side of South Mountain and camped that night at Fairfield, Pennsylvania. Buford later wrote that the people of Fairfield were afraid to speak to him or his men, one townsperson told him, quote, The rebels will destroy our houses if we tell anything, unquote. Buford's troopers awoke on the morning of the 30th and rode 8 miles eastward to Gettysburg, which they reached around 11 a.m. Like in Fairfield, the citizens of Gettysburg were worried. They'd already dealt with Early's division marching through only a few days prior, and according to Buford, they were, quote, in a terrible state of excitement on account of the enemy's advance on this place, end quote. Another more positive account came from Tilly Pierce Allman, a 15-year-old girl living in Gettysburg who later wrote, quote, A little before noon on Tuesday, June 30th, a great number of Union cavalry began to arrive in the town. They passed northwardly along Washington Street, turned toward the west on reaching Chambersburg Street, and passed out in the direction of the Theological Seminary. It was, to me, a novel and grand sight. i had never seen so many soldiers at one time. They were Union soldiers, and that was enough for me, for I then knew we had protection, and I felt they were our dearest friends. A crowd of us girls were standing on the corner of Washington and high streets as the soldiers passed by. Desiring to encourage them, who, as we were told, would before long be in battle, my sister started to sing the old war song, Our Union Forever. As some of us did not know the whole of the piece, we kept repeating the chorus." Unquote. That is actually a really funny thing to me. People who start singing a song but they don't really know the words to it so they just kind of mumble along and then sing the chorus. Born in the USA, I was- Born in the USA. Born in the USA. What's even funnier to me is that later on she even remarked that the Union soldiers were disappointed that they didn't know the words. Shortly after arriving, a sizable force of rebels approached Gettysburg from the west. This was Pettigrew's brigade. The Yankee troopers rode to meet them and briefly skirmished before Pettigrew ordered his soldiers to withdraw back toward Cashtown. That night, around 10.30 p.m., Buford sent out messages to Generals John Reynolds, the closest Infantry Corps commander, and General Alfred Pleasanton. He managed to learn quite a bit in the span of about 12 hours. He knew for sure that A.P. Hill's 3rd Corps was in Cashtown and its division commanders were Heath, Pender, and Anderson. Longstreet's 1st Corps was close behind. His troopers had intercepted a Confederate courier that had been sent by Ewell, who informed them that Rhodes' division was marching south in the vicinity of Petersburg or Heidlersburg. Johnson's and Early's divisions were unaccounted for, but Buford did have some information that a force was marching west from York. The veteran Kentucky cavalrymen determined to make a stand at Gettysburg. Beside the obvious benefit of controlling the road hub there, Gettysburg had interesting geological features that even someone untrained in military engineering or topography could recognize as a decent place to fight a battle. John C. Ropes described the town as being, in quote, a beautiful basin surrounded by some 10 to 20 miles off by mountains of, say, 500 to 1,000 feet in height. There is a great deal of open country. The hills are not sharp, bold, well-defined hills, at least these are rare but long, rather low tablelands, with meadows and pasture grounds between, Basically what he meant was that most of the high ground around Gettysburg wasn't too steep or rocky to place infantry and artillery on. To the west of town were a series of ridges and hills that basically ran parallel, north to south. Farthest to the west was Hare's Ridge, which was heavily wooded. Next was McPherson's Ridge, which was mostly uncovered. To the north of McPherson's Ridge was heavily wooded and steep Oak Hill. The last ridge and the one closest to town was Seminary Ridge, named for the Lutheran Theological Seminary that occupied it. One of the few tall buildings in Gettysburg was the seminary, whose cupola could be used as an observation post. Buford knew that the closest rebel force was to the west. Pickets from Heath's division were only four miles away from his own vedettes. So he placed his two brigades near Hare Ridge, facing west on either side of the Chambersburg Pike. Cavalry wasn't expected to be able to hold against infantry attacks for any significant amount of time. Because he was missing his reserve brigade, he only had about 2,900 troopers at hand and one battery of horse artillery, which meant that he was significantly outnumbered. Heath's division consisted of nearly 8,000 infantrymen and four batteries of artillery. The two advantages that the Federals had were their superior defensive positions, which could be used to perform a defensive depth, meaning that they would hold one position and then fall back to another to continually delay the enemy advance. The other advantage was in their weaponry. Federal troopers all carried carbines, mostly sharps models, which lacked the range of the rifled musket an infantry would carry, but could be loaded more quickly, and the carbines were small enough so that a trooper could load while crouched behind cover. Buford posted his videttes about a mile to the west of his first defensive line, so they'd be able to give them a good warning if and when the rebels advanced in the morning. Sentries were also posted north of town in anticipation of Ewell's advance. Buford later wrote quote, By daylight on July 1st, I had gained positive information of the enemy's position and movements, and my arrangements were made for entertaining him until General Reynolds could reach the scene. Unquote. Lieutenant Aaron Jerome, a Signal Corps officer attached to Buford's division, recalled a conversation between the hard-hitting New Yorker Colonel Tom Devin and General Buford. Devin boasted that they would, quote, "...take care of all that would attack his front during the ensuing 24 hours," unquote. To which Buford replied, quote, "...no you won't. They will attack you in the morning, and they will come booming, skirmishers three deep. You will have to fight like the devil to hold your own until supports arrive." The enemy must know the importance of this position and will strain every nerve to secure it, and if we are able to hold it, we will do well." That support was led by General John Reynolds. After Meade took command of the army, he kept Reynolds on as the commander of the left wing of the army, which meant that he was responsible for the 1st, 11th, and 3rd Corps. It seemed appropriate that the 1st Corps was first in line. It made sense numerically speaking, but they were also thought of as some of the best troops in the entire Army of the Potomac. On June 28th, they began their march starting in Middletown, Maryland, and by the evening of the 30th, they'd crossed the Mason-Dixon line into Pennsylvania. Reynolds halted his corps about five miles south of Gettysburg and spent the night at Moritz Tavern with General Oliver Howard, whose 11th corps was five miles to the south at Emmitsburg, Maryland. General Dan Sickles' 3rd corps was just behind them. Buford's courier reached Reynolds about midnight, who informed him of the situation at Gettysburg. Because Meade was not completely aware of the Confederate positions, he fanned his remaining four corps out so the Confederates couldn't perform a turning movement against their right flank and cut off his line of supplies at Westminster, Maryland. This move was the right one to make at the time, but it proved unnecessary. and made it so that they were more spread out than they needed to be. By the night of the 30th, aside from the First Corps, the 12th was the only other federal corps in Pennsylvania, near Littlestown, about 10 miles south of Gettysburg. To the south were the 2nd Corps, just below Tawneytown, which was also where General Meade's headquarters was on the 30th, and the 5th Corps, which was between Union Mills and Hanover, Maryland. Guarding the extreme right of the Army of the Potomac was General John Sedgwick's 6th Corps, which was more than 25 miles away from Gettysburg at Manchester, Maryland. Meade contemplated his options on the 30th. It seemed likely that a battle could begin any day now, but he wanted it to be on favorable terms for his own army. Meade is sometimes described as prudent or cautious in nature, which might be true, but he was certainly acting more decisively than Hooker had in the past month and a half. Though he would order his army forward to meet the Confederates, he also drew up alternate plans for a defensive stand in Maryland. Meade had a military engineer's mind, and he found what he considered to be the perfect place to fall back to protect Washington and Baltimore. The proposed defensive line was situated along Pipe Creek, Pipe Creek is a tributary of the Monocacy River, and except for one bend of the river where it turns north, it almost runs completely east to west. The creek itself was a minor obstacle for an attacking force, but on the south bank of the creek was Parr Ridge, which, at an elevation of about 800 to 1000 feet, was a formidable defensive position. Any frontal assault against the ridge was destined to result in heavy casualties. Meade's plan was to line his army along the creek with the left flank anchored at Middleburg and the right flank at Manchester. Cavalry would screen the left flank to prevent the rebels from turning their position, and one corps would be held in reserve. Their base of supplies at Westminster could also be well defended by the Pipe Creek line. Meade had his staff prepare orders, usually referred to as the Pipe Creek Circular, on the night of the 30th, and it was to be sent out to his corps commanders as early as possible. Unfortunately for Meade, the Pipe Creek Circular was used after the war as an example of his cowardice and unwillingness to fight the Army of Northern Virginia. I don't want to spend too much more time on it now, but again, this is where Meade's decision to keep General Dan Butterfield as his chief of staff proved to be a mistake. The man who had the greatest knowledge of the orders was essentially an enemy to Meade. When the Joint Committee for the Conduct of the War held hearings in 1864, the Pipe Creek Plan was used against Meade. But he was just doing what a military commander should do. Planning for contingencies was the right thing. He had little knowledge of Gettysburg and whether or not it would make for a good place to fight a battle. Even as he developed the Pipe Creek defensive plan, he issued orders to his various corps commanders to move north. He also told his subordinate officers to prepare their men for a potential fight by informing them of the gravity of the situation and issuing them ammunition and rations for three days. The veterans of the Army of the Potomac knew that this meant something was about to happen. Most of what soldiering consisted of in the Civil War was pretty mundane. Each day was spent doing drills, making improvements to the camp, and doing picket duty. The rest of it was spent trying to fight off boredom by playing games, reading, writing letters, and just hanging out with your boys. But when a campaign was on, it meant hard marching that would eventually end in some sort of a fight. Meade's marching orders for July 1st were sent out in the early morning hours. Reynolds received them at 4am, and after reading the orders over several times, he then prepared the 1st and 11th Corps to advance toward Gettysburg to reinforce Buford's division. Not long after, Buford received the orders from Mead as well, which gave him a little sense of relief. He wasn't going to have to hold out for nothing. The Army of Northern Virginia was also preparing to move on July 1st. General Lee sent orders to Ewell to have Rhodes and Early's divisions march either to Cashtown or Gettysburg as the situation would dictate. Lee's headquarters was at Greenwood, just west of South Mountain, and close to Longstreet's headquarters as per usual. He relied heavily on his top subordinate officer, whom he called My Old War Horse, but he needed him now more than ever, with Stonewall Jackson dead and Stuart missing in action. In the morning, the 1st Corps would march east through the Cashtown Gap in support of the 1st Corps. General Hill also devised a plan to move east toward Gettysburg, which he informed Ewell during the early morning of the 1st. General Henry Heath readied his division to move off before daybreak. At 5 a.m., the Confederates began their march to Gettysburg. At the head of the column was, strangely, a battalion of artillery. It was one of Hill's reserve battalions, led by Major William Pegram. Normally, you'd have either cavalry or infantry in the front, as artillery is more vulnerable to capture, but it seemed as if Heath only expected light resistance that the artillery could easily blow away. Behind Pegram's battalion followed Heath's four infantry brigades. Buford had given strict directions to his vedettes to stay vigilant. From their advance posts, the Federal troopers watched for any sign of movement from the Confederates that night and in the pre-dawn hours. Just before 7.30 a.m., troopers of the 8th Illinois Cavalry spotted a dust cloud, which was a sure sign that a large group of soldiers was on the move. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones had just left the sentry post to ride back to the reserve line to eat some breakfast. Before he was able to eat, Private George Heim came riding in from the Vedette line and informed Lieutenant Jones of what they'd seen, and both quickly rode back to the front. There, they could see the head of the Confederate column, about 600 to 1,000 yards to the west. Haim aimed his carbine to fire a shot, but Jones stopped and said, quote, hold on, George, give me the honor of opening the ball, Unquote. Jones borrowed a carbine from Sergeant Levi Schaefer, leveled the rifle on a fence rail, and as he later wrote, quote, I took aim at an officer on a white or light gray horse and fired, the first shot at the Battle of Gettysburg, Unquote. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones is widely credited with opening the Battle of Gettysburg, but there were at least a few others who made that claim of firing the inaugural round. Jones's case is pretty credible, and he and the veterans of the 8th Illinois would later raise money to create and place a monument on the spot where the shot occurred. True or not, Jones's brief moment of fame adds to the romance of Gettysburg. Jones's round had no immediate effect in that no one on the Confederate side received the bullet, but the shot served as a warning to Buford and his horse soldiers that the Rebs were coming. It also bought them time as it would force the Confederates to alter their course of action. After the shot was fired, the Videttes formed a skirmish line and waited as the Confederate soldiers came closer. Major Pegram had his lead artillery battery, the Fredericksburg Battery, unlimber and fire around the cavalry skirmishers. If the Confederates had truly believed that they only faced a group of untrained militia, they quickly realized this was not the case. The militiamen at Wrightsville had fled over the Columbia Bridge after three rounds from General Gordon's guns. This time, the Yankees in their front did not retreat, even after the Fredericksburg battery had lobbed several shells at them. Lieutenant Jones's sentry post was on the property of a 31 year old blacksmith named Ephraim Whistler. Whistler came out of his house to find out what all the commotion was about, and just as he walked onto the Chambersburg Pike, a Confederate artillery shell burst right in front of him. The explosion threw him on the ground, and though he didn't receive any shrapnel wounds, he never recovered from the incident. It seems likely that he suffered from some sort of heart attack and died about a month later, leaving behind a wife and two children. Buford's decision to make a stand to the west of town proved to be the correct one. He knew that they couldn't hold for that long, but the division could disrupt the momentum of the Confederates' march and force them to maneuver from a fast-moving column to a slow-moving line of battle. Heath did exactly as Buford had hoped. For about an hour and a half, Heath's division moved into position to attack the unknown federal force in their front. Over time, it became clear that it was cavalry that they were facing, but they were fooled into thinking that there was also infantry close behind. The infantry of the 1st Corps would not get on the march until about 8 a.m., which meant that they would not reach Gettysburg until after the battle had commenced. The Rebel skirmish line traded chance with Buford's vedettes. To the north of the Chambersburg Pike was Colonel Devon's brigade, and to the south was the brigade of Colonel William Gamble. Gamble had recently returned from medical leave to take command of the 1st Brigade of Buford's division. He was born in Ireland in 1818. After studying engineering and briefly serving in the British Army, he emigrated to the United States in 1838 and served in the U.S. military during the Seminole Wars. After his first stint in the U.S. military, he settled in Chicago, where he worked as a civilian engineer and became a close friend to John Franklin Farnsworth, the Illinois politician-turned-cavalry officer whose nephew was Elon J. Farnsworth. Farnsworth organized the 8th Illinois Cavalry Regiment, which he was appointed to lead. He helped Gamble get a commission as a lieutenant colonel, and picked him as his second-in-command. Both Gamble and Farnsworth were ardent abolitionists before the war, and when the 8th Illinois was created, it was nicknamed the Big Abolition Regiment. When Farnsworth was promoted to brigade command, Gamble succeeded him, and when Farnsworth left the army to take his seat in Congress, again Gamble took his place as brigade leader, though he missed significant time in the spring because of the lingering effects of a bullet wound in his chest. Gamble was thought of as a reliable officer, but in spite of his last name, he was considered to be a rather cautious commander, and lacked the aggression that Colonel Tom Devin possessed. General Heath's lead brigades were then of Brigadier General James Archer and Joseph R. Davis. Archer was a Marylander and lawyer by trade, but he'd served in the Mexican War and left the legal profession in the 1850s for an army career. He'd led his brigade of Tennessee and Alabama regiments since June of 1862. Davis, a Louisiana native and also an antebellum lawyer, was considered by many to be a nepotism hire, being that his uncle was President Jefferson Davis. He'd been promoted to brigade command in 1862, but never led his troops, made up of three Mississippi regiments and one from North Carolina, in a significant battle. Archer's brigade drove Gamble's vedettes through the woods on Harris Ridge on the south side of the Chambersburg Pike, while Davis's brigade attacked Devon's troopers on the north side along an unfinished railroad cut. When the railroad reached Gettysburg a few years prior, there were plans to extend it westward, but the project was incomplete. By 1863, they'd excavated the ground running east to west, but no tracks had been laid. Casualties were light so far, as nothing serious had truly developed yet. It was still just a small skirmish at that point, and General Heath, who now knew for sure that he faced at least a brigade of Federal Cavalry, possibly infantry too, should have fallen back. To press the attack was a violation of the orders that had been passed down from General Lee, but Heath must have sensed an opportunity for a quick victory, so after Hare's Ridge was abandoned by the Yankees, they continued to pursue them to McPherson's Ridge, where Buford had planned his main defense. There, his two brigades and a battery of horse artillery, led by a 22-year-old West Point Class of 1863 graduate, Lieutenant John Calif, made a determined stand. Just after 10 a.m., General John Reynolds arrived on the scene and sought out General Buford. He found him at the Lutheran Seminary on the ridge that bore its name. Buford was descending from his observation post in the cupola when Reynolds spotted him. He asked Buford, quote, What's the matter, John? Unquote. To which the cavalrymen replied, quote, The devil's to pay. Unquote. Reynolds asked him if he could hold his position long enough for the 1st Corps to deploy onto the field. Buford said back to him, quote, I reckon I can," I'd quote. "Now, I will say that some historians make no mention of the story and instead claim that Reynolds found Buford at the front on McPherson's Ridge, but both Eric Wittenberg and Edward Longacre, two historians who focus on the role of cavalry at Gettysburg, say it was on Seminary Ridge, so that's what we're going to go with. Also, who doesn't love the line, the devil's to pay." The arrival of the first Corps came not a moment too soon. The cavalry had been skirmishing with Heath's division for almost two hours, and many troopers were running low on ammo. Archers and Davis's brigades had taken a long time to get into an attack formation, but once they were underway, there was little the cavalry could do but trade ground for time. Also, around this time, the infantry of the Confederate Second Corps was beginning to arrive on the field to the north of Gettysburg. On the morning of the 1st, General Hill sent a courier to General Ewell, who informed him that Hill was moving his corps to Gettysburg that morning, so Ewell changed the destination of his own march from Cashtown to Gettysburg. Though it was almost accidental, this meant that nearly two whole Confederate corps would converge on the town at almost the same time, so if the Army of the Potomac expected to prevent the rebels from capturing it, they'd have to defend two fronts, the west and the north. Colonel Devon's pickets, which covered the north side of town, came into contact with skirmishers from two Confederate brigades of Rhodes' division, a brigade of Georgians led by Brigadier General George Doles, a pre-war businessman and militia captain, and a brigade of Alabamians under the command of Colonel George O'Neill, an Irish-American antebellum lawyer and diehard secessionist. Back on the Chambersburg Pike, just before 10.30 a.m., the Confederates had captured Hare's Ridge and continued their advance toward McPherson's Ridge. As the Confederates approached the ridge, they spotted Federal infantry. Reynolds's soldiers had finally arrived after a nine-mile march from Moritz Tavern and relieved Buford's worn-out troopers, though some stayed and fought alongside the infantry. Brigadier General James Wadsworth's division was now on the field. First in line was the brigade of Brigadier General Lysander Cutler, a pre-war teacher and businessman who developed a reputation in the war as a tough soldier. His men nicknamed him the Grey Wolf. His brigade was mostly made up of New Yorkers, but also included a regiment of Hoosiers from Indiana and nine companies of Pennsylvanians. As they deployed into a battle line, they took a heavy volley of fire from Davis's advancing brigade. Though Cutler's soldiers had slowed the Rebel advance, they were quickly overwhelmed. The 55th North Carolina was on the extreme left of the Rebel front line, and as they ascended the ridge, they managed to outflank the New Yorkers. Cutler's right flank gave way and fell back to Seminary Ridge, but the 147th New York, whose commander fell wounded before he was able to give the order to retreat, held on until the regiment was virtually annihilated. Captain J.V. Pierce of the 147th described the action. Quote, The battle reopened on the right with redoubled fury, and the cry came down the line, They are flanking us on the right! I saw an officer ride down from Oak Hill in our rear, wave his cap and retreat. To venture into this maelstrom between the railroad cut and that fence on the right was death. Closer pressed the enemy. A regiment, the 55th North Carolina, was pressing far to our right and rear, and came over to the south side of the rail fence. Their colors drooped to the front. An officer in front of the center corrected the alignment as if passing in review. It was the finest exhibition of discipline and drill I ever saw. As I started with my men to the rear, I found Edwin Ellsworth mortally wounded, who begged me not to leave him. I stopped, and with Sergeant Peter Schutz, assisted him to his feet, and tried to carry him, but I could not, and had to lay him down. His piteous appeal, Don't leave me, boys, has rung in my ears and lived in my memory these five and twenty years. Sergeant Schutz was killed soon after near Oak Ridge. The time spent in assisting Aylesworth delayed me, so I was among the last to lead the field. Captain Pierce, along with several of his men, managed to escape through the railroad cut back to Seminary Ridge. In less than an hour of action, nearly half of Cutler's 2,000-man brigade was either killed, wounded, or captured. The 147th New York entered the fight with approximately 380 men. By the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, only 86 were present for duty. While Davis attacked Cutler's infantry to the north of the Chambersburg Pike, Archer's brigade was heading for the southern portion of the ridge toward McPherson's Woods, sometimes called Herp's Woods. When it seemed like they had the Yankee cavalry outflanked, Archer's soldiers spotted the infamous black hats of the 1st Brigade of the 1st Division of the 1st Corps of the Army of the Potomac. It was the Iron Brigade. The hard-fighting Westerners hailed mostly from Wisconsin, but also Indiana and Michigan. They were led by Brigadier General Solomon Meredith, a 53-year-old native of North Carolina. He was born into a Quaker family, though eventually he left the Quakers and North Carolina and settled in Indiana, where he became a farmer and at various times served as a sheriff or marshal. He gained many important political connections when he twice was elected to represent Wayne County in the Indiana House of Representatives. His rather large stature made him stand out as a Civil War officer. At six foot seven, he was nicknamed Long Saul. He recruited and led an indiana infantry regiment early in the war and in 1862 successfully lobbied joe hooker to let him replace general john gibbon as the commander of the iron brigade gibbon opposed his promotion but long soul's political connections to the governor of indiana and the republican party paid off reynolds sent one of his staff officers to ride back to tawny maryland to inform general meade of the situation and that he intended to hold gettysburg as long as possible as the courier rode off, Reynolds spurred his horse and galloped to the front along McPherson's Ridge to direct the Iron Brigade into action. As Archer's Brigade advanced into the woods on the southern slope of the ridge, Reynolds was ordering individual regiments of the Iron Brigade to meet the threat. He shouted to the men of the 2nd Wisconsin Infantry, Forward, men! Forward for God's sake and drive those fellows out of those woods! Just then, Reynolds fell out of his saddle to the ground. His aides rushed to his side and removed him from the battlefield, believing that he'd just been stunned by a spent bullet that hit his forehead. As they carried him away, they found the bullet wound in the back of his head or neck and realized that he was dead. This was a shocking moment, for Reynolds was not only the highest ranking officer on the field, but as the commander of the left wing, he was the second most important officer behind only Meade in the entire army. It was Reynolds who, with Buford on July 1st, decided to commit his troops into battle and hold the town of Gettysburg. Less than an hour after arriving on the battlefield, Reynolds was dead. In a previous episode, I talked about the tendency of many Civil War officers to lead from the front in order to inspire their troops and take charge of chaotic situations. But the death of John Fulton Reynolds on July 1st showed the fatal flaw in this style of leadership. Sure, soldiers didn't necessarily want to see their leader shy away from the action, but Reynolds was too far up the chain of command to be directing individual brigades and regiments along the front line. This was the job for his division, brigade, and regimental commanders. I don't want to take away from Reynolds' bravery, but it should be noted that his death was the result of recklessness, and it would have profound consequences on the battle. Stepping up to take his place was his most senior division commander, who at the time was also acting 1st Corps commander, Major General Abner Doubleday. Besides his fame as a Civil War general, Doubleday is often credited as the inventor of baseball. I won't go too much into the story, but essentially one man claimed that in 1839 in Cooperstown, New York, Abner Doubleday took the game of town ball and created new rules and standards that resembled the game that we now call baseball. A commission in the early 20th century was created to find the true origin of the game. They were really trying to prove that it was purely an American invention and not an adaptation of the British game of rounders. The commission was told of the Doubleday story, and decided that it was the true origin of the sport. Modern historians have almost completely disregarded the story as a myth, with no substantial evidence to back the claim. Nevertheless, the Baseball Hall of Fame is located in Cooperstown, and as recently as 2010, former Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig claimed that the Doubleday myth was the true origin of baseball. I kind of think that the reason they like the story is just because his name sounds like double play. Doubleday himself never even claimed to have invented the sport, and had been dead 15 years when the Mills Commission made its report. Despite Reynolds' death, the tide of the battle turned in favor of the Union side. Almost in a reverse of what had happened to the north of the Pike, it was the Iron Brigade that managed to outflank and overwhelm the Rebels. Archer's Brigade was the smallest of Heath's division, with only about 1,200 soldiers, as a result of the heavy losses it suffered at Chancellorsville. All but one regiment of the Iron Brigade attacked the Tennesseans and Alabamians for 20 minutes. The 6th Wisconsin Infantry Regiment, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes, had been held in reserve, and sometime around 11 a.m. they were ordered into the action. Cutler's line had faltered, and the right wing had fallen back to Seminary Ridge, but two other regiments held on. Colonel Dawes and the 6th Wisconsin, along with the 84th and 95th New York regiments led a counterattack against Davis's brigade. The Mississippians and North Carolinians originally were attacking from west to east, but they turned to the south when the Wisconsin Badgers and New Yorkers charged in furiously. Despite taking heavy fire from the rebels, the Union soldiers kept coming on. The color bearer of the 6th Wisconsin fell dead. Another soldier dropped his rifle and picked up the flag, but again fell to a bullet wound. After a third soldier died trying to carry the regimental colors, Colonel Dawes picked it up and led the regiment forward. Their attack broke the momentum of Davis's advance, and they fell back to the railroad cut, which temporarily offered them cover, but because the excavation was so deep the signs were about 15 feet high, they were unable to fire out of it and became sitting ducks. The attacking Federals reached the railroad cut and began to fire muskets at will. Dawes attempted to stop the slaughter and shouted at the Mississippians, quote, "...where is the colonel of this regiment?" Unquote. Major John Blair of the 2nd Mississippi shouted back, Who are you? Dawes replied, quote, I command this regiment. Surrender or I will fire. Unquote. Dawes later recounted after the war, quote, The officer replied not a word, but promptly handed me his sword, and his men, who still held them, threw down their muskets. The coolness, self-possession, and discipline which held back our men from pouring a general volley saved hundreds of lives of the enemy. And as my mind goes back to the fearful excitement of the moment, I marvel at it. Dawes claimed that over 200 men of Davis's brigade surrendered in the railroad cut. Additionally, around 500 were either wounded or killed in around two hours of fighting between Hare's Ridge and McPherson's Ridge. Six Wisconsin took a beating in the process, though. Of the 420, blaze it, men that went into action on July 1st, half were killed or wounded in less than an hour. Davis's and Archer's brigade broke around the same time, shortly after 11 a.m., 200 more of Archer's soldiers also surrendered to the Iron Brigade when they were unable to retreat. General James Archer himself was wounded and captured, which made him the first high-ranking Confederate casualty in the fight. After the retreat of Heath's vanguard, there was a brief lull in the action. Both sides went about removing their wounded from the field and prepared for the possibility of more action. The commanders of each army reacted differently to the news of the battle. Neither had intended to instigate a fight on July 1st, but a fight is what they had on their hands now. Reynolds' courier reached Meade around 11.30 in the morning and briefed him on the situation. Meade was worried that the Confederates would overwhelm his troops before reinforcements arrived, but Captain Stephen Weld assured the commanding general of the promise that Reynolds made to hold the town. They would barricade the streets if they had to. Meade had confidence in his wing commander. Quote, Good, that is just like Reynolds, unquote. Little did he know at that moment, Reynolds was dead. During the late morning and early afternoon, Meade was forced to make some extraordinarily difficult choices. It seemed as if his plan at this point was for the 1st and 11th Corps to hold Gettysburg for as long as possible to give the rest of the army time to fall back to the proposed Pipe Creek line. Meade figured that based on Reynolds' message that he never received the Pipe Creek Circular, and that if that was the case, then General Howard probably hadn't either. Meade was angry that his chief of staff, General Butterfield, failed to get the orders out in a timely manner, and that it would throw a wrench in the plan. As new information trickled into Meade's headquarters at Tawnytown, it became obvious that more improvisation was needed. General Dan Sickles was still at Emmitsburg when the battle was intensifying. Unlike Reynolds and Howard, he did receive the Pipe Creek Circular that morning. He'd been ordered to hold at Emmitsburg, but when the news of the battle and Reynolds' death reached Devil Dan, he contemplated moving his corps forward, Ultimately, Sickles did order the 3rd Corps to march north to Gettysburg after a courier from General Howard suggested he do so. General Henry Slocum's 12th Corps was the only other that could possibly reach Gettysburg in a timely manner. They were near Littlestown, Pennsylvania that morning with orders to march to two taverns about five miles outside of Gettysburg. Slocum lived up to his reputation as a slow, unaggressive commander and didn't push his troops onto Gettysburg in time to reach the battlefield that day. General Meade learned around 1.30 that Reynolds was either dead or gravely wounded and that General Howard had taken command of the field. Meade, using the authority that had been given to him by Lincoln and Halleck, decided to appoint a new wing commander to supersede Howard. General Winfield Scott Hancock had arrived in Tawny Town that morning with the 2nd Corps and was with Meade when he heard the news about Reynolds. With the 1st Corps commander dead, Meade ordered Hancock, his friend and fellow Pennsylvania native, to ride ahead to Gettysburg and take command of the troops in the field while Meade would stay out of his headquarters and manage the rest of the army as they were redirected toward the town. For General Robert E. Lee, the morning began routinely. After he woke up and broke camp, he rode with his most trusted commander, General Longstreet, along the Chambersburg Pike to Cashtown. As they moved through the Cashtown Gap, the thunder of artillery could be heard in the distance. Sounds grew louder and more intense as they got closer to General Hill's headquarters. Lee became perturbed not only by the commotion, but the lack of information. Hill had not accompanied General Heath to the front, because he was down with a recurring illness that had plagued him throughout the war. But he was up and ready by the time that Lee had arrived. Lee inquired about what was happening, but Hill had few answers other than that Heath had reported earlier that morning that they'd encountered Yankee cavalry on the road to Gettysburg. Lee wondered out loud why Hill had sent two full divisions of infantry and two artillery battalions on a reconnaissance, and Hill awkwardly tried to explain the situation before he rode off to the front. Lee waited back at Cashtown, but his patience was wearing thin around noon when there was a lull in the battle. Lee conferred with General Dick Anderson, Hill's only division commander still at Cashtown. Anderson later recalled that Lee was, quote, very much disturbed and depressed, unquote. Again, the disappearance of Stewart seemed to bother him the most. The Army commander told Anderson, quote, In the absence of reports from him, I am in ignorance as to what we have in front of us here. If it is the whole Federal force, we must fight a battle here. Unquote. Around this time, Major Campbell Brown, a courier sent from Ewell, reported to Lee that Yule had redirected Rhodes's and Early's divisions toward Gettysburg around 9 a.m. after receiving word from Hill that his corps was marching there. Lee seemed annoyed to hear this and asked Brown only if Yule had heard anything from Stuart, which he hadn't. Again, Lee became more agitated by this. One thing that should be noted was that there was Confederate cavalry in the area of Gettysburg. Stuart's three brigades were off somewhere to the east, but the brigade of General Albert Jenkins had accompanied Yule down from Carlisle. In fact, it's highly likely that Jenkins troopers had skirmished with the cavalry vedettes of Colonel Devin north of Gettysburg at around 4.30 that morning, as Ewell's column was marching toward the town. Many allege that it was one of the cavalrymen of Jenkins or Devin's command that actually fired the first shot of the Battle of Gettysburg, not Lieutenant Marcellus Jones at 7.30 a.m. Lee also could have called on General John and Bowden, Grumble Jones, or Beverly Robertson to bring their cavalry up to screen the advance of the army, but he either didn't think to do so, or, if he had, didn't believe that they'd be of significant service. To be sure, Stuart's failure to reconnect with the army by July 1st was a huge failure. He really bungled it there, but Lee dropped the ball here as well. It was almost as if he expected Stuart to literally come riding in to save the day, but by now it was too late. A.P. Hill had yet to return or send a courier to inform Lee of the situation, so he and his staff rode to Gettysburg to find out what was happening. He found Hill near Hare's Ridge somewhere around 2 in the afternoon. Within the last hour, General Robert Rhodes' division had arrived on the field north of town. That morning, Ewell had directed Rhodes to have his five brigades march due south toward Gettysburg along the Carlisle Road. He also ordered General Early to lead his division southwest along the Harrisburg Road, so if they timed it right, they both arrived north of town within a short interval of each other. Rhodes and Ewell both rode up to Oak Hill, a large, densely wooded hill to the north of McPherson's Ridge. From there, he could see pretty much the entire battlefield in front of them. Rhodes's division was ordered to leave the road and march over the hill to conceal their movement and prevent the Federals from capturing the position. Yule and Rhodes realized that if Heath renewed the attack along McPherson's Ridge, Rhodes's division could sweep down from the north and attack the exposed flank of General Wadsworth's division. General Heath met with Lee and Hill during the hiatus in the fighting. He'd explained what happened over the course of the morning and implored him that he be allowed to renew the attack now that his entire division was up, he was reinforced by General Dorsey Pender's fresh division, and the 2nd Corps was coming down from the north. I mentioned back in episode 1 that Heath was the only general in the army that Lee called by his first name, as they developed a close friendship early in the war. Lee told Henry, quote, I do not wish to bring on a general engagement today. Longstreet is not up, unquote. He was not ready to hit the gas pedal at that moment. Instead, he ordered General Heath to return to his division while they waited to see what the newly arrived 2nd Corps was going to do. With the situation on the battlefield clear for the moment, Lee's other question was answered. Major Andrew Venable, one of Jeb Stuart's staff officers, found Lee. Venable informed him that Stuart's cavalry was riding toward Carlisle to meet with Yule. As we know, Ewell was no longer in Carlisle, so Lee had Venable ride back to tell Stuart to move to Gettysburg at once. More on that later. General Oliver Otis Howard was informed of the death of John Reynolds about 11.30 a.m., Reynolds' staff officers explained to Howard the situation, and whether he wanted it or not, the Puritan general was thrust into the role of wing commander. After the war, he wrote, quote, My heart was heavy, and the situation was grave indeed, but surely I did not hesitate a moment. God helping us, we will stay here till the army comes. I assumed command of the field. Unquote. Howard was on the scene around noon. Other than some sporadic artillery fire, the battle had wound down, which was probably the best thing to happen. Howard ultimately would have a couple of hours to get a hold of the situation and formulate a plan. But contrary to his claim that he surely did not hesitate a moment, Howard hesitated quite a bit. He essentially made three mistakes. One, he didn't communicate to General Meade quickly enough what was happening. Two, though he did send couriers to General Sickles and Slocum, he did not convey the proper sense of urgency of the situation. Sickles did, however, bring his corps to Gettysburg, but they were too far away to have an effect on the outcome on July 1st. Thirdly, and most importantly, Howard made poor decisions about the placement of the troops under his command. General Abner Doubleday had handled the battle well in the aftermath of Reynolds' death. Since the morning's fight had been centered around McPherson's Ridge, that's where the majority of the 1st Corps was now located. With Doubleday acting as the 1st Corps commander, his division was led by Brigadier General Thomas A. Rowley. His two brigades, led by Colonels Chapman Biddle and Roy Stone, moved into line on either side of the Iron Brigade on McPherson's Ridge. Cutler's brigade, which had also been involved in the morning's fight, was placed further to the north in response to the reports of Ewell's corps. Brigadier General John C. Robinson's division was the last of the first corps to arrive. Robinson ordered Brigadier General Henry Baxter's brigade to reinforce Cutler's right flank. Robinson's other brigade, led by General Gabriel Paul, was held in reserve. Howard decided not to meddle too much with what Reynolds and Doubleday had done already. He gave no orders to Doubleday to shift his lines. Once the XI Corps arrived, he had them march north of town and fall in on Doubleday's right. With Howard acting as wing commander, Major General Karl Schertz was tapped to command the XI Corps. Schertz's division was passed to another German, the Prussian-born Brigadier General Alexander Schimmelfennig. Alexander Schimmelpfennig was a former Prussian soldier who became politically radicalized in the late 1840s while living in Cologne. He was swept up in the revolutions of 1848 and enthusiastically sided with the revolutionaries. The 48ers by and large could be defined as liberal revolutionaries, but at least a sizable portion of them were self-described socialists or communists, which schimmel was a part of. After the revolutions in Europe collapsed, he immigrated with many of them to England, where he was heavily involved in the German immigrant population living in London. He became a member of the Communist League and sided with a faction led by another future Union army general, August Village. Village was opposed to the dominant faction in the Communist League, led by more well-known figures like Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Eventually, both Village and Schimmelfenegg left England for the United States in the 1850s. Schimmelfenegg got a job at the War Department, where he worked until 1861. At the beginning of the war, he and his friend and fellow 48er Karl Schurz attempted to raise an old German cavalry regiment, but the plan eventually fell through. Shortly after, he went out recruiting German immigrants in the areas of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which resulted in the 74th Pennsylvania Infantry Regiment, aka the 1st German Regiment. Eventually, he was promoted to command of a brigade, which he had led since the Battle of Antietam. The brigade was mostly made up of Germans that lived in New York, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, but it included native-born regiments from New York and Ohio as well. With Schimmelfenig moving up the ladder, next in line to replace him was another German, Colonel George von Amsberg. He was from the Kingdom of Hanover and had served as an officer in the Austrian army, but defected to participate in the revolutions of 1848 with the Hungarians. The other brigade in the division was led by yet another 48er, but this one was not German. Colonel Vladimir Kierzanowski was born into a Polish noble family in the Kingdom of Prussia. As he grew up, he became an ardent Polish nationalist and participated in the failed Polish uprising in 1848. His revolutionary background, education and engineering, and support for the Republican Party landed him a commission when the war broke out. General schimler deployed von Amsburg and Kurzanowski's brigades to the north of town on either side of the Carlisle Road. Falling in on the right was the division of Brigadier General Francis C. Barlow, the only American-born division commander in the XI Corps. Barlow's two brigades, led by Colonel Leopold von Gilsa, who, based on the name you might guess was German, and Brigadier General Edelbert Ames, an American, marched to the south bank of Rock Creek, a small tributary on the Monocacy River. Behind his infantry, he placed a battery of artillery on a small knoll. One thing that Reynolds' staff officers really hammered home with Howard was the importance of Cemetery Hill. Buford and Reynolds recognized the large, plateau-like hill south of town was the key position. Its name derived from the Evergreen Cemetery, which was created in the mid-1850s. Cemetery Hill's mostly flat top made for a nearly perfect artillery platform, and whichever army held the hill would have a commanding view of most of the area. Buford and Reynolds committed to holding the town, so Howard would do the same, but the situation in the afternoon was different than what Reynolds had faced at 10 a.m. Wadsworth's division outnumbered the two brigades that Heath led into the fight. 1st and 11th Corps had about 18,000 men combined, whereas the four Confederate divisions that were in the vicinity of Gettysburg consisted of about 28,000 men. The Federals enjoyed the advantage of our old friend, interior lines, but Howard failed to utilize this fully because the Union line was spread out much too thin and poorly positioned. Howard justified this after the war basically by saying that Reynolds had advanced to McPherson's Ridge so he felt that he should hold that line and extend it north of town. The terrain on the north side of Gettysburg was mostly flat, except for Oak Hill to the northwest and Blotcher's Knoll to the northeast by Rock Creek where Barlow's division was positioned. Defending this sector of the line would be far more difficult than the ridges west of town. Howard did make one smart decision in leaving the division commanded by General Adolf von Steinwehr and reserve on Cemetery Hill. Now I don't mean to play Monday morning quarterback too much here, but as the next man up, Howard really did need to step up into the role he was thrust into. Instead, he basically did the bare minimum that was required of him, and then after the battle offered some pretty lame excuses as to why. Basically, he didn't want to move the First Corps closer to Seminary Ridge, which would have shortened their lines, because he didn't want to change what Reynolds had done. It seemed that he was trying to piggyback off the now-martyred general. To be fair, most officers put into his position probably wouldn't have done much better. I also think it's fair to say that the Battle of Chancellorsville and Jackson's surprise flank attack on his Corps was fresh on his mind. On July 1st at Gettysburg, General Oliver Howard was playing not to lose, and as a result, he acted cautiously and indecisively. So that's where I'm going to leave off for today. In the next episode, we'll pick back up around 2 p.m. on July 1st when the battle was renewed and finish up the first day's fight and its results. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History.